have a question for you. Who's responsible for climate change? And who should pay for the impacts? Things like rebuilding homes and communities devastated by fire, not to mention shoring up emergency services and building retaining walls and sandbagging for flood after flood after flood. And who should pay for the transition to clean energy? Who pays for retraining workers, getting new technologies up and running, installing new infrastructure, and reducing our energy consumption? This week on Mission Transition, we're going to delve into who pays as we work our way through the transition to clean energy. Hi, you're listening to Mission Transition, clean energy and beyond. We're a Sierra Club BC mini-series recorded on Lekwungen territory. We're looking at the transition to clean energy beyond solar panels and electric cars. I'm Susan Elrington with Caitlin Vernon, who is Campaigns Director at Sierra Club BC. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Sue. You know, Caitlin, it's been 14 years since Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. I don't know if you remember how shocked we were by the extent of the damage it caused. You know, more than 1,800 people people died. And in the end, the damages amounted to more than $160 billion. I can remember the images and, and the horror as, as you saw people trying to escape the flooding. You know, that was called the storm to end all storms. There were big national telethons to raise millions of dollars because we thought it was an extreme and unusual event. And actually, there's a different story to all that. Governments had failed to reinforce the necessary infrastructure. This was one of the biggest causes of the flooding. And then in the emergency response, governments prioritized some people over other people, which meant that the residents of poor communities, largely people of color, were not rescued in the wake of the storm. And we now know that the storm wasn't, in fact, unusual. These days, we're seeing huge, destructive hurricanes becoming an annual event. And that's not even mentioning the extreme weather, like cyclone bombs, whatever those are, and record snowfalls. This spring in the, in the U.S., they recorded more than 400 tornadoes in three weeks. And we're seeing extreme rainfalls leading to record flooding. And we thought we were getting used to the headlines about forest fires until last year. That's when we saw a fire in California that moved so fast and furiously it wiped out an entire town. People were literally driving away in cars with flames lapping at their doors. Honestly, all of this is shocking and incredibly upsetting. It is. And and not only that, it's expensive. You know, there just aren't enough telethons to raise the kind of money we need now. So then where does the money come from to pay for this? That's what we want to talk about in this episode. Climate change is being caused by the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with our Western, industrial, growth-based economy. Basically, what's happening is that corporations are profiting at the expense of the planet. So then it follows that the people or the corporations causing the most damage should be the ones to pay for it. That's what a group of kids in the United States think. They're suing their federal and several state governments for failing to protect their health and well-being. They're saying that the governments failed to act when they knew that carbon pollution was poisoning their environment. Now, that class action lawsuit was filed in 2015. It's still working its way through the courts. And the kids' lawsuit is turning up some really interesting facts. We now know that the company Exxon knew about the impacts of climate change 30 years ago. We also know that Exxon made efforts to suppress and deny the climate science. That's partly why we're dealing with such extreme weather now and the extreme costs of cleaning up after, not to mention the costs of having to transition really rapidly to clean energy. 
We don't have the luxury of time we might have had if we'd started 30 years ago. And that's why a number of other states and cities in the U.S. have filed their own lawsuits against the oil industry. And some B.C. municipalities are also considering lawsuits to help pay for the costs of adapting to things like sea level rise and wildfires. Oh, Caitlin, they need money. Municipalities are responsible for 70% of the infrastructure in Canada, but they only get eight cents on every tax dollar paid in Canada to maintain and upgrade that infrastructure. The City Council in Victoria um, recently passed a motion to pursue legal action against oil and gas companies. Yeah, but when I sat down to talk to Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps, I learned that the urgency of climate change could actually be making some municipalities reconsider this approach. So my council did pass a motion uh, asking uh, the AVICC and then the UBCM, which are the local government associations, to consider a class action lawsuit. Uh, But I think with uh, more uh, information emerging and, and time running out, I actually don't think that's the best strategy to pursue. Why not? Well, we've got, according to the IPCC report that came out uh, in October, we have 11 years. We have 11 years. And the class action lawsuits against tobacco companies began more than 20 years ago. We don't have that time to waste. And we have limited resources as local governments. And I think what we should do and what we're doing here in Victoria is looking at what can we do within our powers and what can we uh, encourage others to do to simply phase off of fossil fuels. Now, I say simply, it's obviously not that simple, but that's, I think, the best uh, way to approach the fossil fuel companies is simply to make them redundant. But does this mean that oil and gas companies won't end up really bearing any of the the cost or the responsibility for climate change? A lot of people saying they were the prime contributors. Uh, They are contributors, absolutely. Um, I don't have the uh, data in front of me to say how much they've contributed, but it's the provincial governments that are taking the tobacco companies to court, right? I just don't know that, like, it's it's laughable to think that for eight cents of every tax dollar, which needs to go to improve roads and parks and build bike lanes and swimming pools, that we'd have any spare money to fight big oil. I mean, it is is a a bit of a naive thought. Um, I don't want to call my council naive and I did support the motion, but since then I've given it a lot more thought. And I just, I think that there are much more productive ways to, uh, you know, even if we could convince both federal and provincial government, stop subsidizing fossil fuels and use those monies to subsidize local governments for mitigation and adaptation measures, that would go a long, long way. That was Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps. Now, municipalities are feeling the time crunch when it comes to getting money to pay for the effects of climate change. She talks about how lawsuits are expensive and take a really long time, but that doesn't change the point that it shouldn't be up to municipalities to be paying for the climate impacts or the transition to clean energy. For example, the city of Victoria estimates that a one-meter rise in sea level could cost businesses losses of more than $400,000 a day. And so the city of Victoria sent a letter to 20 big oil companies to ask them to contribute to these costs. For example, the letter to Chevron said that the company is responsible for 3.34% of greenhouse gas emissions already in the global atmosphere. So the city is asking Chevron to pay 3.34% of their costs to adapt to the changing climate. You know, Sue, to my mind, that seems an entirely reasonable request. 
And and another group of citizens believe it's still worth pursuing legal action. I spoke with an environmental group in Quebec that has launched a legal battle against the federal government on behalf of millions of young Quebecers. Now, they argue they will be the ones that will have to bear the burden of the government's failure to act on climate change. So my name is Catherine Gauthier. I'm 29 years old, and I'm actually the executive director at Environnement Jeunesse, a youth NGO uh, that promotes environmental education and awareness among young people. So Catherine, you guys have launched this class action suit against the government. Can you tell me what you're suing the government for? Yes, sure. We are suing the Canadian government because it is not respecting our rights to life, to the security of the person, and also the right to a safe environment in which biodiversity is is preserved. Uh, We believe the Canadian uh, government is responsible for acting on climate change, and actually both our GG reduction target is insufficient, and our action plan is uh, almost uh, unexistent. Uh, So for those reasons, uh, we believe the Canadian government is uh, infringing on uh, our generation rights. Can you describe to me the burden that you believe that young people are going to have to bear as a result of government inaction on climate change? Mm -hmm. As young people, we will suffer the most from uh, all the impacts of climate change. Uh, For years now, reports have been warning us about uh, longer and intense heat waves, uh, extreme weather, floods, uh, waves of climate refugees, and we will also have to pay for these consequences. So as young people, uh, despite the fact that we are already experiencing more and more of these impacts, uh, we believe that the situation uh, will only worsen by 2030 or 2050. Uh, So this is why young people are um, the generation that will be the most affected by climate change. Catherine, if you should win, and class action suits notoriously take a long time, that's an awful lot of effort to put into this particular action. What are you hoping to accomplish with the lawsuit? Uh, We are hoping that the Canadian government will take action uh, without delay uh, to make sure we avoid uh, the most severe impacts of climate change. The Canadian government uh, has agreed to limit global warming to 1.5 Celsius degrees in the Paris agreement um, and to do so and if the Canadian government is is serious uh, in its commitment it has to set an ambitious target uh, and to implement an action plan uh, to reach this target. Um, A such plan concretely uh, would have to include the end of fossil fuel subsidies uh, to support uh, renewable energy as uh, solar or wind uh, energy uh, and more generally to also provide a fair and a just transition for all workers uh, and individuals across Canada. So we're starting to see quite a few of these lawsuits, uh, states, municipalities, even industry groups. Catherine, what do you think is going to be the tipping point when it comes to these kinds of lawsuits to actually move us towards clean energy? Mm. I believe lawsuits uh, are one more tool that citizens and um, activists can use uh, to make sure our governments uh, are accountable. Uh, It means, for example, that a government cannot say internationally Internationally, um, it is a leader on climate change or in transitioning toward a low-carbon economy. Uh, while at the same time, as we have seen in Canada, uh, support the worst uh, energy sources uh, in the world. Uh, so I'm sure lawsuits. Uh, 
can provide a really strong incentive and also to um, counterbalance uh, in some way the oil lobby that is so powerful, uh, especially uh, in, the, in our country. Um, as we don't have any other excuses uh, because we can actually make a different choice in Canada. Uh, we need to invest in uh, cleaner solutions, uh, but also to make sure uh, that our government is protecting people rather than a specific industry. Okay, so we've heard from young people and municipalities who are looking for someone to be held accountable. But they aren't the only ones, are they? Industry, too. We've heard about the increasing acidification of the warming oceans affecting oysters and other shellfish off Vancouver Island and along the west coast of the United States. Well, harvesters are now seeing more disease and toxins, and that's happening all along the coast. So now crabbers, for example, are filing suit against Chevron and Exxon for lost revenue. I'm guessing we can expect these kinds of lawsuits to continue And I know, Sue, you've been looking at another perspective on responsibility when it comes to the impacts of climate change, and you're somehow bringing the Kardashians into this? Oh, don't they get into everything? Yes, I'm going to tell you how after we take a short break here on Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. I'm Elizabeth Hazel, and I'm the manager of donor engagement at Sierra Club BC. I work with our donors. We have about 2,000 members and 36,000 contributing supporters across the province of British Columbia. Uh, What we do at Sierra Club BC is help our donors and members become connected to the places that they love and value and protect those places. I'm always struck by the stories that I hear from people when they make a donation. There's always uh, a connection that they have to this province that we live in and love. And... um, When they give us a donation, it is an act to um, protect and value and and steward this this place that we love. Mail us a check or go online to sierraclub.bc.ca. Hi, you're listening to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. We're produced by Sierra Club BC. I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon. So, Sue, you were talking about how the Kardashians have something to do with the impacts of climate change. Yeah, and Caitlin, this goes back to those horrific wildfires in October of last year in California, where whole neighborhoods were being destroyed. Mm. Well, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West own a $50 million mansion in Calabasas. That mansion managed to escape any harm, and that was thanks to private firefighters protecting the property. And that apparently is something that the insurance companies do when they're insuring these mega mansions worth tens of millions of dollars. Which, of course, is not something that most people are able to afford, making that kind of <clears throat> support in a wildfire not accessible to everyone. It's it's disturbing to me to see such a stark example of how Um, the amount of money we have influences how we experience a climate crisis like this. You know, their home was saved, but many other people lost their homes entirely. And and looking at the footage, a lot of people ended up camping in parking lots. Yeah. And this is particularly unfair because when you think about it, the level of consumption, just the sheer amount of stuff that was bought to build a mega mansion, like a $50 million mansion, is part of what's causing this whole climate crisis. Right. And of course, there's a twist that the Kardashians could afford to build a fancy home that is net zero, which means that it generates all of the electricity that that they need. And net zero homes are part of the solution and need to be part of the solution. But 
but they need to be done in a way that everyone can afford, not not elitist mansions. Yeah. And, you know, most homeowners I know who are in my range of income <laughs> are struggling just to pay their hydro bills, let alone being able to invest in solar panels or, or heat pumps. And many people are renters. You know, they're unable to make any of the retrofits that are required to become net zero. Yeah. And when I talk to friends, I often hear them talking about feeling guilty that they aren't doing more for the environment. And yet, most of us don't have the money to buy an electric car or to install solar panels or do any of those things. Yeah, there's a, a bit of a field of study coming out about the psychology around climate change, and that sense of individual responsibility has become part of the work that Anjali Apadurai has been doing. Now, Anjali is a climate change activist, and she worked most recently with the West Coast Environmental Law on their initiatives to hold oil companies responsible for some of these damages related to climate change. I sat down outside a funky little coffee shop in Ladner recently to talk with her about this sense of our individual guilt. So I know when we've had a previous conversation, you mentioned to me that you've worked around the world, and when you came back to BC, you found there was more of an emphasis on the individual when it came to that sense of responsibility for climate and the transition. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, so from like 2007 to 2015, my work had taken me all over the world and I was working with social movements and civil society groups around the world. So I wasn't really in touch with what the actual debate was in Canada around climate change. And so when I came back, I was kind of taken aback by the extent to which the focus for climate change solutions was upon individual consumers, individuals just like us. Um, The main message is that we as individuals are given basically two main tools with with which to combat climate change, and that is our lifestyle choices and our consumer dollar. What is wrong with that? (laughs) It doesn't sound bad to me. What's the problem with individuals taking responsibility? Right, and so I didn't see that as necessarily a negative thing. I just saw it as... um, a kind of a limiting frame when we talk about climate change and climate action because of course it is a wonderful thing to be aware of yourself and be aware of your consumption patterns and to be aware of your ecological footprint on this earth but I found that there was less emphasis as a result on the role of more systemic factors at play in what has caused and maintained the climate crisis and namely the fossil fuel industry and and their role in this in creating the crisis and and their current role in um, sort of getting away with not really paying much towards their fair share. So how does taking individual responsibility allow the oil companies to feel that they're off the hook? (laughs) Well, I think there's a number of issues with the individual responsibility frame. Um, And so when I was working with West Coast Environmental Law and we were going around the province talking to different people about how to um, open a conversation around what fossil fuel companies should pay, I found that the biggest blockage in that work didn't actually come from the fossil fuel industry having power over people. It actually came, the biggest blockage in that work came from people's own sense of guilt, like a profound sense of guilt that they could not and were not doing enough around climate change. So how does that guilt relate to the fossil fuel industry? That sense of guilt was a, uh, a strong factor in 
making people not want to talk about more systemic things like the fossil fuel industry. Uh, that sense of guilt I find to be so crippling and so problematic because it uh, renders us almost powerless because the individual responsibility frame tells us that we're powerless. It tells us that we're only as powerful as our lifestyle choices. You're only as powerful as the amount of eco-friendly products you're able to purchase or you're only as powerful as the number of lifestyle changes you're able to make and the lengths to which you're willing to go to bike or to change your light bulbs or to retrofit your home or to um, fly less or, you know, any number of choices that we can make. And all of those choices are very uh, worthy of respect. Like, they're all amazing things to do. But I find when there's this guilt that's tied along with those choices, uh, it turns into... Uh, a paralyzing force that blocks us from the idea of collective action and blinds us from how powerful we can actually be as a collective force. You know, it plays right into the hands of the fossil fuel industry. They want us to think that way at all costs because they can maintain the frame that, oh, we all created this crisis together and we're all going to do our part to solve it together. So, you know, we'll do our part. We'll invest minimally in uh, renewables and, you know, we'll put green stickers and all the gas pumps and you guys, you know, you worry about your lives and what you can do in your lives and we'll all maintain the status quo that way. And so the, the industry loves it that we place the guilt and the burden of blame on ourselves um, uh, because it really lets them off the hook. So the guilt is actually used to divert attention from where big systemic change could happen. And it occurs to me that this sense of guilt is also unfair in that it ignores economic inequalities. There are so many quote-unquote green alternatives that are simply a question of privilege. I mean, not everyone can afford an electric vehicle or eco-friendly products, and maybe a single mom can't afford to stop driving every day because she has to take her kids to school, and maybe immigrant families can't stop flying because their families are split all over the world. Instead of focusing on all our individual and highly varied needs in terms of energy consumption, which are and those are so um, those are so intricate. The intricacies of that are so relative to privilege and to class and to race and to all the other places where we find inequality in society. And so instead of surveilling each other and creating a culture of surveillance around who's consuming less and you know who could be doing more, industry would love if we you know kept doing that and didn't look at it instead. So what are we supposed to do about these feelings that we have? Well, I think one of the first actions we can take is to ditch the guilt. I really think that everyone cares. Everyone cares, not just activists. It, everyone cares and everyone wants to do their part. And I think the first thing we can do is to stop guilting ourselves around not doing enough, not feeling bad that we can't do more for the planet, and um, not limiting our power to just the things we can buy or the things we can do in our individual lives, but maybe starting to think about how we can how we can work together, um, how we can, you know, influence policy together or um, influence the media together. But don't stop recycling. But don't stop recycling. And that's the nuance of it, right? Like, we all have to be conscious consumers and we all have to be conscious 
you know, citizens of this planet as well. And we all have to look to indigenous leadership where, you know, the people who lived here long before settlers stewarded this land for thousands of years uh, in a beautiful way. And so we have to always be questioning ourselves and looking within ourselves, but at the same time, not guilting ourselves um, for what we can't do. So there's a nuance and a balance there. But I think if we could achieve that balance, we'd all be so much more powerful. You know, Sue, what I take away from this is the importance of challenging systemic injustices as we figure out this transition to a clean energy future. And it makes me think about this question of this question of guilt is around who's paying and what are we paying for? Because there's the cost of the, the cleanup that we've been talking about, whether that's adapting to sea level rise or dealing with these really frightening wildfires or flooding in our communities, but also the costs of the retraining of workers, the retrofitting of homes that, you know, needs to be, everybody's home needs to be retrofitted to reduce our energy consumption, whether that's apartment buildings or, or houses, not just not just having that available to some. So who's paying for that? And, you know, Caitlin, this idea of who's paying for this transition is going to raise its head more and more and more in the coming months and years as, as we find our way through this transition. And it actually should be something that we're asking candidates about in the upcoming federal election. Right. And I think one of the takeaway points here is that it shouldn't really be up to you or me as individuals to pay for this shift. But you and I do have a role to play in making sure that the companies who have benefited from climate change are the ones to pay for it. And so in addition to the lawsuits that we've heard about, which are about getting corporations to pay for these costs of fires and floods and so on, there's one very simple and obvious step that our governments could be taking. And what would that be, Caitlin? Well, so currently our federal and provincial governments are giving billions of dollars of taxpayer money to oil and gas corporations, to the very same industry that's making things more unsafe for our communities with all of the extreme weather that's resulting from the climate crisis. So one one really immediate step would be to stop these handouts and for our governments to be investing that money into community-based renewable energy projects instead. And so that's something specific you can ask candidates about in this election season that we're, we're heading into. Please do. Yes. And thank you, Caitlin, for that thought. And, and that's it for this episode of Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. And you can find out more information in the links on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. Don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can tag us at Sierra BC. Our thanks this week to North Growth Foundation for their continuing support of this podcast and to all of you who have donated to keep these episodes coming. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. Thanks again this week to Caitlin Vernon and Kat Zimmer at Sierra Club BC. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>